and find a seat. And we're going to get into God's Word together. Or I will, and you'll just keep talking. Either way. All right, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, certainly glad that you're with us for the next few minutes at least. We're going to look at God's Word together. That's what we do every Sunday. We believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it's living and active, that it's relevant for today. And uh, we believe that as we come to it, we are encouraged, we're, uh, our faith is raised, we're transformed and changed by His Spirit working through His Word. And so uh, that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to come to God's Word. We're going to seek to understand it. We're going to seek to apply it to our lives, all right? So to do that, we need the Spirit's help, so let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in, all right? So Father, we just are so thankful for your presence here with us. We're thankful that you are such a great and glorious God, and yet you come down to us, and you meet with us. Uh, because of what Jesus has done, we can come into your presence this morning. Uh, we can enjoy that. Uh, we can rejoice in it, and so we just thank you for it. We ask that you would come now by your Spirit. Uh, your Word says that we can only understand your Word through your Spirit, that your Spirit brings revelation. And so we pray this morning that you would, by your Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. We want to be changed this morning. We don't want to be the same people that we are right now after looking at your Word. So we pray that you would come and do your work that only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we've been working our way through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And we're beginning chapter 3 this morning. And so, just a quick review to get us all up to speed, because the times that that we preach are farther apart now, so, uh, so it was like the first of May, I think, the last time we looked at 2 Corinthians, and I don't remember much from a month ago, but I'm not saying you don't, but... So a quick review, Paul had started this church in Corinth, he had spent a year with them, he was kind of like their, their spiritual father, uh, he uh, spent a lot of time with them and just seeing them grow into maturity, but then the relationship kind of took a bit of a turn. Uh, tension had begun to form between the apostle and the, and the church. Some of the people there had started to bring some accusations against him, and so there's like a, a gap forming between apostle and church. And in that gap, some other guys, some other teachers started to wedge themselves in, uh, and they kind of set themselves up against Paul. So Paul is poor, he suffers, he's not uh, articulate or whatever you want to, he, he's not eloquent. And, and they are the opposite. They're wealthy. They are eloquent. They are asking for money and all these things. And, they, and Paul hilariously calls them the super apostles. I'm just an apostle, but these guys are super apostles. And, uh, and so they kind of come in and are continuing to kind of bring the Corinthians into this distorted value system that puts, you know, uh, uh, fame and riches and eloquence and all these things up here and the things that Paul is a sufferer and poor and going around you know getting beat up 
way down here. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to help uh, bring some teaching into that. And we've seen that for the first two chapters, how he's been talking about suffering. He's been giving them this uh, paradoxical uh, worldview that flips everything around. Okay? So that's where we've been. And we left off last time. Paul ended chapter 2. He talked about who is sufficient for these things. We talked about being an aroma for Christ and and uh, how we can be an aroma of life to some, an aroma of death to others. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? And in chapter 3, he's going to carry on this, this theme of sufficiency, and he paints a pretty cool picture for us of his ministry that's all about writing and paper and ink. And so uh, that's why we called it this morning, How's Your Handwriting? All right? So we're going to read the first few verses here of Second Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll read 1 to 6. All right? We're up to speed. We know where we're at now. All right, chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All right, it's a bit, it's a bit kind of all over, but nothing that we, we can't handle. He's already done a few other verses that were a bit more difficult than that one. But So before we get into unpacking his, his writing analogy of his ministry, I think it would be good to just get an understanding on that word ministry, because ministry in the church can be a word that we toss around quite a bit. We can use in various things, and sometimes... When that happens, we lose the meaning of it, and we just talk about ministry and ministry, and I was ministered to, and we don't really know what in the world we're even talking about. And so ministry can kind of go over there on the shelf with other words we do that with, like prophetic and resonate and other words that our church likes to use very often that we can sometimes lose the meaning of. It's good to poke fun of ourselves, but there you go. We can laugh. So we want to understand what the word ministry means, right? And so ministry, uh, when Paul's talking about his ministry here, he's talking about his apostolic ministry, which is him traveling around, preaching the gospel, planting churches, demonstrations of power in the Spirit. And so that's Paul's specific apostolic ministry. And so a lot of times, even today, we can come with a very narrow view of what ministry is. We can talk about people being called into the ministry. Oh, he was called into the ministry, which generally means that someone accepted a position full-time at a church. He was called into the ministry, right? We can can use it as a title and say that person is a minister. And that can be growing up with my my dad, who was a Baptist pastor. I heard that quite a bit. We're going to go see the minister, right? And that can be 
quite unhelpful because what it does is it kind of sets up this, this dynamic where here's the people over here who are ministers and here's the people over here who are ministered to, right? And so it sets up kind of this spectator dynamic where here's the guys who do ministry and here's us who get ministered to. And so we need to have a much broader view of ministry than that. To minister basically means to give service or care, to contribute to, and it carries with this idea that you're coming as an agent of a higher authority. You're coming on behalf of someone else. And so when Paul says that we are all ministers of a new covenant, he's saying that whatever we do to see Christ formed in others, whether explicitly or implicitly, is ministry. Whatever we do to see Christ formed in others, whether implicitly or explicitly, that is ministry. Whatever we do, either indirectly or directly, to see Christ's mission advance, that is ministry. That's the broad view we need to have of what ministry is. And so with that, we see then that ministry extends to every area of our lives. No area of our lives cannot fall under the banner of ministry. And so Martin Luther said this. He said, The idea that service to God should, only have, should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without a doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that the service of God takes place only in the church and by works done therein. The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, the kitchen, the workshop, and the field. And so then we have this huge, broad view of what ministry is, right? He's talking about ministry not only in the church, but in the home, and in the workshop, and in the kitchen, and in the field. He's just painting a picture that we need to raise our view of what ministry is. And so, kids church, worship team, move team, AV guys, street level, praying for people in the entryway, giving someone an encouraging word that you know is going through a hard time, that's all ministry. But even outside of Sunday morning, having new people over for a meal, on a Sunday afternoon, um, being nice to the person at the cashier, whatever it might be, it all is ministry. It's all either indirectly or directly flowing out of a desire to see Christ formed in that person. And so if we have kids, we have a huge ministry at home because we are called to see Christ formed in those children, not just to give them food and shelter and other basics of life, like telling your four-year-old daughter that she's put her underwear on sideways, and the reason that she's in so much pain is because the leg holes around her waist, right? We've been there. Well, we might not have been there, but... We have a ministry opportunity with our children to see Christ formed in them, not just to give them the basics of life and then push them out the door. 
If you bring a, ne- a meal to a new mom, that's ministry. If you open your home to a student, ministry. In your workplace, you conduct yourself, your attitude, your work ethic for the glory of God, that's ministry. Sitting in your dorm room and just sharing your story with the girl down the hall, that's ministry. Taking the boy who lives across the street, whose dad left, and bringing him over into your garage, teaching him how to change a tire, that's ministry. It's a broad view of seeing Christ formed in other people. And so that's the theme then that we need to have as we look at Paul's analogy, because we don't want to just come to this and just think about Paul's apostolic ministry, because not many of us have an apostolic ministry, right? But we can have a broad view of ministry and then come to what Paul is saying here about his ministry and apply it to ourselves. Does that make sense? Great. You're a quiet bunch this morning. I'll trust that it makes sense, even though you didn't say anything. So with having that broad view of ministry, then let's look at three things. We'll look at the paper, the pen, and the ink of Paul's analogy. All right? So first, let's look at the paper. So Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You, are, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So it was common in those days for people to carry around letters of recommendation uh, for lots of things in their life. You would need a letter from someone else uh, to, to kind of back you up, okay? And, and that's not uh, um, a foreign concept to us. We all have either filled out letters of reference or have asked people for letters of reference. Uh, it's not a, a hard concept for us. Oftentimes when we apply for a new job, if there's wisdom on the part of the employer, they will ask for references to check, back check the person's history and to have someone vouch for them. And it's one of the joys of being a pastor is that you get almost weekly uh, a request to be a reference for somebody. And so, whether they're applying for a new job or school or whatever it might be. But Paul isn't upset because he's against the practice of that. That's a good practice. Uh, The disgust that we kind of sense in Paul's tone isn't because he thinks that's foolish and we shouldn't do that. In Romans uh, 16.1, he says, uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. And so he commends her to the Romans. He gives a letter of recommendation for Phoebe, okay? So he says to them, Phoebe's a servant. This girl has helped me and many others. She's legit. Give her whatever she wants. That's a a paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. And so he gives a letter of recommendation on behalf of Phoebe, okay? Phoebe Bicknell has never asked me for a reference, but if she did, I could just write Romans 16.1, She's legit. Give her whatever she wants. Right? It's going to come this week now. Sincerely, Brent. So Paul isn't against letters of recommendation, but what's, ha- what it, what's upsetting to him is that the Corinthians, or at least some of them, seem to be asking him for letters. Okay? So Paul, uh, he, he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't part of the uh, 12 disciples. 
And so some people we see through the story of his life are suspect of his ministry because of those things, right? And so being uh, in those days, being part of the 12 and walking with Jesus is kind of like the seminary degree of today, right? So Paul doesn't have an MDiv, so I'm not really sure that we should be trusting his apostolic ministry, okay? So just this past week, I was at Nathaniel's baseball practice and standing in right field talking to a guy for a few hours. We covered a lot of ground, and eventually it comes to, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor, and there's usually a little head swing over, especially when you're like 45 minutes in the conversation and whatnot. Anyway, um, so, so he said, how did you get to that point? And I try really hard, guys, honest, to not make us seem like a bunch of crazy people. <laughs> but he's expecting seminary. He's expecting whatnot, and I'm saying I'm piling lumber at Topmar and meeting with Joe, and then the church hired me, and he was like, and you can just see the wheels <laughs> turning, and he's like, you know, are you guys 20 people in a basement? Like, what is this? And I'm like, no, it's like 200 people in a gym, and he's just like, <sighs> right? I try, but it's hard. But it's like, oh, don't worry, it's not just me. It's a bunch of other people who have no qualifications either. <laughs> we all kind of do it together. So it's all good. Oh, dear. It's a slow process. So... You can see why Paul is upset. He's been with the Corinthians for a long time. This is the guy who planted the church. He stayed there for a year to see them come into maturity. He's written letters to them to correct them and bring them on course. And then they're saying, oh, yeah, so we're going to need a reference from you. So if you could just, like, call up Peter or James and just get them to kind of vouch for your ministry uh, for us to continue, that would be great, Right? And, and it would be similar to here if, so Joe's in PEI this morning, if Joe comes back on Tuesday and we said, look, Joe, we know you've been here for a long time, but really if this is going to continue, we're going to need like a letter of reference from you just because we're just not sure about your ministry. And so what would Joe say in response? He would say, you want a letter of reference? You're my letter of reference, Right? The transformation in here and the church growth here and what God has done with us, that's his letter of reference. And so that's what Paul says. He says, you want a letter of recommendation? You're my letter of recommendation. And how God... I'm not sure where that came from. But, but the transformation in you, Corinthians, and the church that has been formed in Corinth and, and how you've seen God work, and that, that's my letter of of recommendation. The authenticity of my ministry is you. You're my proof. You're my letter of recommendation. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul isn't concerned about recommendations and references. He's concerned about results. 
He's concerned about results. And the results are that the Corinthians have been changed, that Christ has been formed in them. And he makes it clear that it's not his doing, but the Spirit working through him to bring about life in the Corinthians. And so what Paul is saying is, guys, what's more important here? Transcripts or transformation? What's more important? Transcripts or transformation? That I bring transcripts to prove my ministry or that I bring transformation through the Spirit? Why do I need to have letters written when God has written on your heart? So when we read these verses, the question that should immediately come to the forefront of our hearts and our minds is, who are our letters? Who are our letters? Who are my letters? Maybe we've got a lot going on for us. Maybe we've got a great personality. We've got uh, charisma. Everyone thinks we're very nice and personable. We've read all the great Christian books. We have just a smoking quiet time that we put on Instagram and we pre-order the Bethel album three months before it comes out and we've got all these things going for us but are there people that you can point to that you've seen Christ formed in them through your life are there letters are there living letters that you can point to is anyone being changed because of your life Paul is reminding us that the goal of our ministry isn't recognition, but reproduction. It's to not reproduce an image of ourselves, but it's to reproduce the image of Christ in others. And we can get all the recognition and all the glory and say, oh, that person is great. They're so awesome. Da, da, da. But if we're not reproducing Christ in other people, then what is it? Who are our letters that we can point to? Our living letters that we can say, they're my letter. I've poured into them. I've worked to see Christ formed in their life. That's the letter that Paul is talking about. Let's keep going. Let's look at the pen. He says, in verse 3, and you show that you are a letter written from Christ, delivered by us, written not with the ink, not, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So we touched on this last time at the end of chapter 2 who is sufficient for these things. But Paul knows that we really need that driven into us. We're so uh, quick to be self-sufficient. We're so prone to do things in our own strength and to think of ourselves uh, as not really dependent on anyone. And we often see dependency as a fault. And so he wants to spend a few more verses on that to help it sink in for us. So notice first that Paul says in verse 4 that he is confident, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So he has a confidence in his ministry, a boldness. He's just talking 
about how the Corinthians are his letters and so on, that God's worked through him to write on their hearts. And so he's confident. At one point, he tells the Philippians that don't be scared about anything from your opponents. It's a clear sign of their destruction and your salvation. This is a guy who is confident in what he does. Don't be scared by anyone. He's confident in what he does. But there's a big difference between confidence and self-sufficiency. And so Paul is quick to point out that his sufficiency doesn't come from himself, that he's been made sufficient. He's been made sufficient. He has been made competent by God. And so when you talk about this living the paradox theme that we've been looking at that runs all the way through 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying that his confidence comes from his personal inadequacy. He's saying, I'm not capable, therefore I am confident. So that's where he's just kind of flipping everything of how we think and how the world thinks up on its head. He's saying, I am confident because I personally am inadequate to do this. That's a strange thing to say. I'm not capable, and that's why I'm so confident. That's a strange thing to say. But many believe what Paul is doing is he's consciously pointing the Corinthians back to the Old Testament and to the life of Moses and Moses' insistence on his own inadequacy before God. And we all know the story of when Moses comes to the burning bush and God calls him to deliver the, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And Moses just goes through his list, right, of his inadequacy. He says, like, um, you know, I have a stuttering problem. I'm inarticulate. I can't do this. And he says, you're going to do it. And he says, oh, can't you send someone else? And God says, you're going to do it. And he says, finally, let's Aaron go with him. But then we see God work through Moses, right, to bring about the liberation of the nation of Israel. And so we see Moses' insufficiency and God's sufficiency coming together to do great things, right? And then that sets a theme throughout the Old Testament. And so we see Gideon, uh, God calls him and he says, I'm a weak guy. In fact, I'm the weakest in a weak family, in a weak clan of a weak tribe. And so you need to call someone else. God uses him to do great things. We see Isaiah come, says, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And the angel of the Lord comes with the coal, touches his lips, says your sin is forgiven. And Isaiah is a great prophet before the Lord. Jeremiah says, I can't do this. I'm only a youth. And God comes, says, do not say I'm only a youth, for I am with you to deliver you. Everything you say, everything I tell you, you're going to say, and wherever I command you to go, you're going to go. So over and over and over, we see this explosive combination of I'm insufficient, God says I'm sufficient, and, it, and great things happen for God's kingdom. We see that God calls someone and their insufficiency becomes the ground of God's sufficiency. Whether it's Moses' inarticulateness, whether it's Isaiah's sin, whether it's Gideon's weakness, whether it's Jeremiah's youth over and over 
and over again. We see that those, whatever those insufficiencies are, they are not valid reasons to not follow God into what he's called us into. In fact, our insufficiency becomes an essential part of the call itself. Our insufficiency and our weakness becomes an integral part of the call from God itself. Oswald Chambers said it this way. He said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. God calls the insufficient so that he can clearly show the greatness of his grace and his power through them. So in a way, Paul is wanting to see ourselves as pens in God's hands. By ourselves, we're entirely insufficient. We cannot claim any sufficiency in ourselves, but as we rely on God and His power, as we give ourselves to Him, He's able to work through us to do great things. Next chapter, Paul is going to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 4-7. We have this treasure of ink in pens of plastic to show that the surpassing power doesn't belong to us, but to God. As Martin said, we are the pen, he is the author. Remain in his hand, and we will bear much fruit. And apart from his hand, we can do nothing. And this is important to get a hold of, because oftentimes in our ministry, whatever it might be, we can either begin to belittle ourselves or belittle the work that we're doing, or belittle Jesus in the midst of the work. So we might belittle ourselves, and we believe the lie that, uh, that we can do nothing. And so we just say, well, I can't do that. I can't, I'm nothing. And so we get kind of the first part of the equation, but we forget the second part that says God is sufficient. And so we just do nothing. We don't serve in any way. Uh, we just see ourselves as completely inadequate and we don't really grab hold of the counterpunch of God's sufficiency and we just do nothing to impact others. Or we think, you know, I've got this stuff going on in my past and this and that and I've just kind of, I'm inadequate to do anything to serve God. And we need to see that the guy who wrote this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, years before, was killing Christians, right? He's got some things in his past. But God's forgiven him, made him sufficient to do the work that he's called them to. If we don't belittle ourselves, sometimes we can belittle the work. And this is a real sneaky one in that it kind of is like this, this false humility. So, you know, we can say, you know, Mark, great, great sermon last week. And Mark can just say, oh, it was nothing. It was nothing. It was no, uh, it's just, ah, uh, God didn't, ah. Uh, and it's just, 
belittling the word. Oh, yeah, that was nothing. It was nothing. Don't mention it. It was just, that's way down here, and we just, oh, I don't even want to talk about it, right? We can belittle what we're doing, and we can just, but it's never nothing, no matter how little it might be. My four-year-old daughter, she writes notes, and she wanted to make Audrey a card and all that, and she writes, and there's some L's and some Y's, and there's words that you have no idea what they are, and she's like, here is my card for Audrey, and she's beaming. For her, it is nothing. It is not nothing. It is something, right? And so we might not write, you know, thesis statements and eloquent poetry, but it's never nothing. And so we don't diminish the work that God's called us to. Lydia takes her time and her resources and her heart and according to the skill that God has given her and she does something. Other times, we might not belittle the work, but we instead belittle Jesus in the work. And so we say, Mark, great sermon last week. And Mark says, oh, well, thanks. I really put a lot of time into it. And did you like that illustration about the, the shovel? Because I worked really hard on that illustration. And I thought it was really, you know, really pointed. And, uh, and how did you feel, right? And so there's no mention of Jesus. It's all about the hard work that we've done and how we served and our sweat and tears. And there's no mention of Jesus at all. And so, in all of those areas, whether we belittle ourselves, or we belittle the work, or we belittle Jesus in the work, they all work towards robbing God of the glory He deserves through our ministry. Because if the work is nothing, then how does God get glory out of nothing? If we belittle ourselves, we do nothing. And so God's going to get no glory and if it's all about us, then we're just the glory hogs trying to get it all. Mark doesn't do that, but he's the easy one to use an example of, because then you don't think that I think that of you, right? <laughs> so whether we belittle ourselves, the work, or Jesus in the work, they all rob God of the glory he wants to get by working through men and women who, in reliance of God, lay down and don't rely on our own natural abilities and resources so that when people look at what God has, is doing and has done through us, they say, there must be a greater power. Give glory to God who is working through you. All right, last one. Paul not only talks about paper and pens, but he also points us to the ink. He also points us to the ink. And so 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then in verse 6, he says that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what Paul is doing here 
is he's comparing the old covenant, the law that Moses received on Mount Sinai, carved into stone tablets, to that of the new covenant, which, like ink on a page, is written on our hearts by the Spirit. He's making that same comparison in verse 3 as he is in verse 6. He's setting up this comparison between old and new covenant, or law versus gospel. So when Paul says the letter kills, he means that the Old Testament law condemns us because we can't accomplish what it demands. It was just letters written on stone and it was powerless to make us obedient. They were just external regulations that by themselves just put out commands that we can't keep and so bring us into judgment. But the Spirit gives life because in the new covenant, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are given unmerited grace and the law is written on our hearts. It's no longer just external regulations, but it's internal transformation. It's not that the law is bad and evil, far from it, but it's outside of us and is powerless to bring change in our lives. But in the new covenant, with the Spirit, the law is written on our hearts. It's about internal transformation and not external regulations. Listen to what God prophesies in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And then in Ezekiel 36, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so the spirit gives life because now in the new covenant, God enables us to walk in his commands. So that means that when we think about our ministry and the goal of our ministry and seeing Christ formed in others, then we need to see the power of God in bringing that to pass. You are a minister of a new covenant, which means that God can use you to bring people from death to life. He can use you to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Because it's not just you and your cleverness and your education and your experience. It's the whole Spirit of God working through you to bring internal transformation to that person you're working with. And so we need to see the power behind our ministry. And so we're not called to go around keeping external regulations and taboos on people. If that's all we do, we are killing people instead of bringing them life. We're called to go around and point people to Jesus and what He's done and the greatness of His grace and the greatness of His love and His beauty and His majesty so that in seeing Jesus and trusting in Him, they have life through the Spirit bringing change in their hearts. And they're transformed from the inside out. So when we talk about the goal 
of our ministry as reproduction of, of seeing Christ formed in others. That's a, that's a high calling. But Paul shows us that the power behind our ministry rises to match the purpose of our ministry. The power behind it, the work of the Spirit, rises to match the purpose of our ministry so that when we're up in kids' church or over in kids' church, wherever it is, and we're standing in front of a group of kids and we don't have the burden of my uh, education and what I know and my uh, articulateness and my strength needs to form Christ in these kids. We can point them to Jesus and trust that the Spirit can bring transformation in an eight-year-old and cause them to desire God. We stand as ministers of a new covenant. And the Spirit can come and bring new desires and new passions and cause even a child to want to walk in God's commands. That's power. That's power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit to bring change to us. And so when we read these verses that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, we need to say, oh, how we need the Spirit in all that we do. Oh, how we need the Spirit in Christ Central Kids. Oh, how we need the Spirit Tuesday morning at Mini Kids. Oh, how we need the Spirit Monday night at Street Level. Oh, how we need the Spirit Saturday night at Fuel. Oh, how we need the Spirit sitting around our kitchen table with our neighbors who don't know Jesus. We need the Spirit, how I need the Spirit in my preaching, how John needs the Spirit in his worship leading. We are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit because it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring change. You do not change anybody, but God, through His Spirit, brings not just external change, but internal change of the heart. He reaches in you, pulls out your heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, and gives you life. And that's what we need in our church and in all the churches. We need the Holy Spirit. And so our prayer needs to be for the Spirit to come and first write on our hearts that we can then become a pen to make our mark on others. And so I don't know what God might be calling you into or I don't know all the the ministries in that broad view of ministry that you're involved in. God might be calling you overseas like Martin and Ann. It wasn't that long ago when Martin and Ann were sitting here like you are without knowing that God was going to call them. So that might be where you're at. God might be calling you to really reach out in the neighborhood that you live in. God might be calling you to get involved in different things that the church is doing. Whatever it might be, don't hide behind your weakness. Debbie brought it out earlier about that fear that can just cripple us from doing anything. Don't hide behind your weakness because just like Moses and Gideon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul and Martin and Anne, the weakness is part of the call. The insufficiency is part of what God 
is calling you into because as you follow him as insufficient and as inadequate and incapable as you are, then God gets more glory from your life. So don't hide behind your weakness. Instead, follow him into what God's calling you into, knowing that the Spirit of God is with you to bring about change.